You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 31st of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. The US-China trade war, which looked like it might be off, looks like it might be on. My guests Isabel Hilton and Michael Goldfarb will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the consequences for future US-China trade if Chinese youth keep buying local, whether a new memoir by an Obama staffer and memoirs by political insiders generally tell us anything we couldn't have guessed, and the reason that European are having trouble reading American newspapers and it's no longer just because Americans can't spell colour or neighbour properly. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Isabel Hilton and Michael Goldfarb. Welcome both. Now, approximately the only criticism that cannot be levelled at the presidency of Donald Trump, and rather vexingly, it's probably the only one that would actually upset him, is that it is uneventful. So much happens, most of it bizarre and or stupid, that it's entirely possible to forget significant events within days, if not hours, of them occurring. Listeners with superhuman attention spans may recall the US versus China trade war, which was was all the rage the other week or whenever it was before appearing to fizzle as so many of Trump's brainstorms do. It does however as we go to air uh, and we're only on for half an hour so anything could happen uh, it does appear to be back on unless it isn't. Um, Isabel is it? Uh, well, I think it'll rumble on. I, I, at the moment, I, I can't decide whether the trade war is between elements of the uh, of the Trump administration or uh, between U.S. and China or U.S. and Europe or U.S. and everybody. Um, probably the final U.S. and everybody, I think. Uh, Michael, are you getting the sense that this is actually going to be a thing? Well, you know, I, I, I think it's possible it could be a thing, if only because... Uh, Allow me to interpret Donald Trump to Please. the monocle universe. <laughs> Donald Trump is the equivalent, I wrote this in the New York Times at the start of the year, of the golf club bore at a particularly nouveau riche kind of golf club. That is to say, he's the guy who says, oh, you know, he, he read in the Wall Street Journal that there's a trade deficit with, with China. You think Trump can, read something in the Wall Street Journal? Somebody told him they'd read it in the Wall Street Journal. He doesn't <laughs> read. You know that. He heard it on Rush Limbaugh. He watched it on Fox News. He said, I can sort this out. This is all simple. Every business problem is simply a question of leadership and simplicity. You just slap tariffs on everything. And I think that that's for real. He also, I mean, Isabel was alluding to the fact that within his own administration, they don't speak with one voice. Um, the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin an alumnus of Goldman Sachs and Peter Navarro, who is the trade advisor and and whose business background consists of being a tenured professor, I think, at UCLA and who's virulently anti-China. Um, they argue in public in front of the Chinese trade delegations. We don't know what they think. I think he just likes the idea of kicking at people. and But there's a real world out there. Well, there is a real world out there uh, of which China consumes quite a large part. Uh, U.S. Commerce Secretary uh, Wilbur Ross is going to Beijing. Uh, what will he be wanting to come back to his boss with? 
Well, the problem with what Trump has has laid out as his demands is that they are they're they're just not possible. I mean, he he, he says there is you know kind of hundreds of billions. Yeah, sorry. He wants a a two hundred billion dollar reduction in uh, in uh, the, the 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 trade deficit. Well. Hang on a wee minute. You know, either the U.S. has to stop buying Chinese goods or the U.S. has to find ways of selling $200 billion more goods into China. Uh, Neither of those seems likely since the goods that China exports to the United States are substantially American goods uh, assembled in China. And the goods that China buys from the United States, you know, substantially agricultural products, cannot be ramped up to the degree, even if you ramp them up to maximum and don't sell anyone to anyone else. Uh, it, it can't be ramped up to that degree. So that's not going to happen. Um, at the same time, he, the, the deeply confusing signals, I mean, one gets exhausted laying these out, but there's a, a Chinese uh, 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 tech company called ZTE, which was caught breaching sanctions on Iran and North Korea. Um, Trump announced that it would no longer be able to buy American components, which would effectively close it down. And then he announced, after all, that actually, no, they would be allowed to buy American components. Yeah, he so suddenly became a really big fan of ZTE for um, some reason. Uh, curiously, though I'm sure there's absolutely no connection, Perish around the, the same time, a lot of trademarks were granted to uh, Ivanka um, and the Chinese invested in a, a, a Trump brand project elsewhere quite heavily. So, you know, clearly no connection at all. No, any, any insinuation simply, to that effect would be outrageous, <laughs> it would Isabel. Be. But, you know, on its own, uh, none of it really makes very much sense. But, you know, what's interesting, I I brought a cheat sheet into the studio, listeners, on, on, my, on my phone. I'm, I'm looking at the latest article on trade wars that's just moved across the Financial Times. And it has this really interesting paragraph, because while, while we were Jenning up, thinking we're going to talk about China in the last hour and a half. He's launched a trade war against against Europe. Yeah. Against Europe. We were going to Canada get to that and Mexico. I'm sorry, I'm, I don't mean to do your job, Andrew. But, <laughs> but, let, let's, but th- these numbers put things in perspective. He's now launched a trade war against the EU. U.S. trade with the EU was worth 720 billion dollars last year. Total trade with China was worth 636. So the guy, it isn't necessarily just about China, although there's an element of this which has echoes of the 1980s. I I remember, you know, um, when Japan was the the beast from the east that was going to destroy the American economy by, you know, dumping cheap goods and and taking away American jobs. Now it's China. Um, It's not that simple ever. But in fact, he's just interested because he's a bully, because he has no, he doesn't actually understand what he's doing. And no one in his cabinet understands what they're doing either, clearly. He's interested in starting these trade wars. And, And it's about products that he deems to be for national security. You you know, no more steel coming into the country, you know, or 25% tariff on steel and so on. And these are national security things, but it's the EU and it's Mexico and Canada are, are partners in NAFTA. And one wouldn't have thought there was a great deal of security problems there since they're all meshed into the same security architecture. In any event, for only 4% of American steel goes into any kind of defense 
related manufacturers. So, uh, you know, I, I think I think that argument is going to be taken to the WTO and, and, and won't survive. But in the meantime, everybody is going to impose retaliatory tariffs and everybody's going to be very fed up. Uh, just a final quick thought on this one, Isabel. Is there any grounds for optimism at all that this might spur? Because this does always strike me as the one area in which Donald Trump and at least the United States do have a point. If this nudges China towards, by way of concession, taking intellectual property rights more seriously, which China, of course, may wish to do of its own accord now that it has more intellectual property of its own than it once did. Well, China will give some concessionary openings. I mean, for, for they need to keep up the, um, the flow of internal foreign investment. However, if you read the Chinese policy, um, as for my sins, I have. So things like China 2025 um, and the other policy documents which lay out how China sees the next iteration of its economy. It is indirectly wishes to dominate advanced technologies and it is investing enormously in that effort. So that is partly um, stealing or, 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 or forcing the transfer of technologies from its partners into China. But it's also setting up something that it rather cheekily calls the Bay Area, which is in Shenzhen in southern <laughs> China, and where, where they have the ambition to have, you know, 10 advanced laboratories headed by Nobel Science Laureates. And they are going out to buy them. So that's really what the United States should be worried about. Okay, well, let's move along just slightly, because one of the more persuasive reasons for maintaining stoic resolve during the current circus occurring in the White House is the anticipation of the many, potentially even deliberately hilarious memoirs which will be written in due course by members of the cast. Until then, we must content ourselves with books about the previous administration, which will make up in erudition what they lack in slapstick. The latest is The World As It Is by Ben Rhodes, longtime Obama staffer with particular responsibility for writing Obama foreign policy speeches. Um, Michael, as a a general rule, if you are an Obama staffer putting pen to paper at last, how difficult must it be to keep uh, on the subject at hand rather than just descending into pages and pages of screaming and ranting? Well, you know, I I happen to know personally um, at least one person who's written a book and will probably write others, and that's Samantha Power, who was his United mm-hmm. Nations secretary, uh, uh, ambassador, and and previously worked on the National Security Council? Look, um, he was called No Drama Obama for a reason, and that stretched right the way through his um, his recruitment policy for his inner circle. You have very smart people who are very very cool and calm, and you know. We can't write about the history of that administration yet. Um, was that a, you know, in the times that we live in, was that coolness and calmness perhaps over-articulated? And did that affect his ability to embed things? I don't know. I think that's a judgment for history. Um, this Ben Rhodes book, um, which I haven't read, but, you know, the summary in, in the New York Times this morning is just, you know, one of those nice articles you get to write, which is actually advertising a new book coming out as much as anything. Um, it, what struck me about it was a passage in which Obama is constantly wondering, and we will wonder about this for a long time, should he have been more forthright about what he knew about Russian interference into the campaign, 
And I think it will haunt Obama for a very long time. And it certainly haunts Ben Rhodes. And what we've seen is, you know, because he did work with him all the time. He did. And, and you know that Obama was a terrific writer. But he didn't have the time to do the first drafts. And Rhodes did his first drafts. And then they worked these things. And they really, there's some masterful speeches that man gave. And um, the portrait of a man who, who's really He's faced with this extraordinary dilemma, and he can't go public with it. That's the thing. Um, Isabel, some of the there have been some sort of excerpts or uh, snippets leaked from the book or mentioned in reviews, and obviously there's a lot of interest in how Obama reacted upon realizing that he actually was going to be succeeded by Donald Trump into the presidency, which, uh, you know, unlikely though Obama's election in 2008 was, if you if you you know, offered odds on him being succeeded two terms later by Donald Trump. Um, I think people people would have been confused by what you were doing. Um, but there is a quote from Obama on Trump's election where he says, maybe we push too far. Maybe people just want to fall back into their tribe. And that reminded me of something that David Axelrod wrote, I think, after before Trump was elected, if I recall rightly, but after Trump was nominated, who, who did talk about politics having a certain pendulum-like quality and having swung so far out to embrace Barack Obama, it swings all the way back to reach a man who is as pretty much unlike Barack Obama as might be imagined. It, it's a phenomenon that's been noted elsewhere that where you get an outlier, um, for example, Margaret Thatcher as the first female prime minister, um, Barack Obama, first black president, curiously enough, instead of being followed by another one quickly, you, there tends to be a very long gap. It seems to reduce the odds of it being repeated for, for quite a long time. And I think that pendulum effect is, um, is, is pretty clear. But just came back to that painful, uh, what if we had done other things? I, I've also just been reading James Comey, who obviously goes into this in, in, in some detail as well. And I think they just the agonizing thing is that they thought Trump just wouldn't win. Yeah, so all I, the that, decisions that's, that's they made... That's become clear. They thought they only had to turn up. Right. So, But, but all, it meant that the decisions they made either about disclosing the investigation into the Russians and, and Trump and the decisions made about announcing the reopening of the investigations with Clinton were all premised on the fact that Trump wouldn't win. And I, they were quite wrong. I did want to ask you both if you have, and I'll ask you first, Michael, if you have any particular favourite uh, insider memoirs. It is a, a genre unto itself by now, these sort of political insiders confessional. My own nomination would be that of Don Watson, uh, who was the speechwriter for the Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating. You wrote a very good book called Confessions of a Bleeding Heart. I'm not just saying that because I'm Australian and because I quite liked Paul Keating. It is a genuinely very good book. Um, do, do you have a particular favourite? Do you know, I really don't, and I hate political memoirs. <laughs> I find I find very few people who work in contemporary politics. There are diarists, for example. I massively enjoy, um, have enjoyed Chris Mullins' diaries. Chris Mullins is a, a labor uh, labor lifer, he, and he briefly was in. Uh, he wasn't a secretary of state, but I, I think he had briefly held cabinet level ministerial position under Tony Blair, um, and and that's pretty terrific. But, you know, who have I got to choose? I'm not going to read Alistair Campbell's memoirs about working for Tony Blair. I'm certainly not interested in anything that anybody close to Gordon Brown would say. And, you know, oddly enough, can you can you name me someone from Margaret Thatcher's 
Cabinet, um, who's written a, a, a memoir. Douglas uh, Hurd did. Yeah, mm. which I which I have not read. They were, of course, Alan Clark's famous. Well, yes, they they were diaries. pretty funny. Um, uh, these are di- yeah. D- Douglas had devoted more time to the uh, renovation of Durbar Court in the Foreign Office than he did to the whole of the Yugoslav Wars, which which pretty much tells you what you need to know about his <laughs> memoirs. I think. <laughs> I have a suggestion though, um, which is the the memoirs of Zhao Ziyang, once General Secretary of the Communist Party and Chinese Prime Minister, who came to grief at Tiananmen, who then spent sixteen years under house arrest, uh, secretly recording his memoirs over children's tapes. They were then smuggled out and published as Prisoner of the State. And as insider accounts go, they are pretty hot, I have to say. You learn more about the inner workings of Chinese politics from reading Prisoner of the State than than any amount of um, political science analysis. Well, on that enthusiastic recommendation, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Isabel Hilton and Michael Goldfarb. Coming up next, why China's young folk are buying local. Subscribe today to become part of the Monocle family. From product design to the best places to go, Monocle will bring a monthly dose of fresh ideas to your door. Being part of the family also comes with a 10% discount at the shop and online, as well as unlimited access to our online archive. In addition, you will enjoy priority access to selected product collaborations and receive exclusive offers and invitations around the world. Subscriptions start from £55. For more information, visit monocle.com forward slash subscribe. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Isabel Hilton and Michael Goldfarb. Now, if China is about to be drawn into a trade war with the United States, there's perhaps some consolation to be had from the buying habits of its youth. Since China began embracing global markets in the 1970s and 1980s, foreign brands have been regarded by Chinese consumers as inherently premium and their local equivalents with a certain embarrassed distaste. Not so among the younger generation of Chinese, who, according to a new report, regard Chinese stuff as being at least as good as anyone else's. Um, Isabel, this is the, the, two, the generation born in 2000 to 2010, and let's just pause for a moment to reflect on the fact that there are almost viable sentient adults walking around out there who were born in the 21st century. Um, how different are they going to be? Well, they're pretty different. They're um, mostly uh, only children. Um, they are probably better off, certainly the urban middle classes are better off than any generation before that. And they are also digital natives and that combination has changed their their shopping habits really. So you get, what you get on the Chinese web now are social media leaders who, who test out brands, who do nothing but talk brands for these uh, for the audiences of tens of millions um, who order them, expect them to be delivered either within two hours or, or at least the same day and um, who don't really look for marketing elsewhere, whereas earlier generations were much more conventional in where they got their news from in terms of, you know, what counted, you know, they, they would kind of know what Chanel was, whereas this lot are 
are much more, they much more follow that internal conversation on social media. So th- I, I can remember being struck uh, going to Beijing in 2001 by the fact that in all those vast new shopping malls that had been built on all those vast billboards, there were no Chinese people, no Chinese faces. The, 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 the models to aspire to were exclusively Western. Um, and I, I get the impression that that is changing. Michael, is this just a part of the usual process of a country coming into the world, as it were? Because, you know, it, it you don't have to be able to remember too far back to remember when the phrase made in Japan was a joke, that that was regarded as something cheap and shoddy, whereas now... You it's, weren't born yet. <laughs> whereas now it's regarded as a, a byword for quality and reliability. Is, is, is that what's happening here? Um, I, I don't know. I, I actually, I, I'd like to ask Isabel this. You know, I was there once, I think in 2014, so that's within living memory. It's almost a generation ago in Chinese terms. <laughs> you know, but, but what I found interesting, and I, I wonder if this affects it, is um, because the internet is so restricted, I, I wonder how much of this kind of you know, marketing and stuff is, and, and, and these shopping tastes are down to the fact that they don't get other, there isn't, there isn't the same information or advertorial in flow um, coming at them through the internet. I also wonder, to be honest, I mean, this ar- the article that we're, there's an article in the South China Morning Post that, today about this is that a brand like Huawei um, has significantly upped its game in comparison to the iPhone, which would have been, you know, the the mark of quality, the, or, or Samsung. Made in China, though, the iPhone obviously was. Well, but I mean, the design and, 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 and everything about it in the operating system is invented in, in Silicon Valley, and then there's Samsung, which is just down the Korean Peninsula, but nevertheless has the cachet of. But now Huawei has, has launched a new mark, the 10, and apparently it is pretty world-beating, and I wonder if that's part of it. And also just, you know, nationalism is becoming a real part of the heartbeat of China now, isn't it? I think all of those things uh, play, that that certainly the brands are a whole lot better than they were. And Huawei's uh, camera, for example, appears to be better than anything else on the market at present. Um, and they're cheaper. Um, I think also that, that, yes, the internet is restricted, but I think it's more that Western brands haven't learned to play the social media marketing game the way Chinese brands have learned to play it, because this is a very local culture, if you think about it. So of that generation, 70% in surveys say they prefer to shop on social media. Um, that's a lot. You know, that means they're not going to the malls. They're not being exposed, you know, in any in any direction to, to the, the brands. Also that their older siblings or their parents like, which is another thing one ought to think about, that, that actually they prefer to think, you know, they, they want to be distinct. So will these seven trademarks for Ivanka mean anything? <laughs> will she be able to crack the mark? Uh, sadly, uh, she seems very popular in China. <laughs> uh, um, but Michael, l- looking at that process, from the other direction, as as we were discussing earlier, the way that the, the the global interpretation or the global image of Japanese products has done a complete 180 degrees in the last half century or so. Can you imagine that becoming the case, especially in the United States, where Chinese products are concerned, that, that American consumers will start to regard made in China as a, as, as a badge of quality? Yeah, eventually that that will happen. I mean, unless Trump is totally successful and drags the world into World War Three, and 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 we're looking at other things. Yeah, of course. I, and I do remember, you know, that that made in Japan. That there's a famous story that 
I think it comes out of a Playboy interview with the head of Sony, who in the late 60s... That interview being, of course, the reason you bought that issue. Of course. Um, always for the interviews, man. Always. Look, the Sony first burst into America with these tiny transistor radios that, like, you know, your parents gave you for, for a cheap Christmas present. They knew it wouldn't last until March. And that, that was our first put-in-your-pocket-and-carry-your-media-with-you tool when I was 13 in 1963. You know... And by the end of the, you know, and this guy, the, the head of Sony, he gave an interview. He said, look, I was so embarrassed when I first came to America for trade shows and saw that we were laughed at and it offended his national pride. And he reimagined the entire, um, what does this, I don't know what the word in Japanese, it's a hong would be the word in, in Chinese. I mean, it's an enormous trading apparatus and directed it towards quality took a decade. By the end of the decade, Sony was a byword for innovation, small televisions you can take anywhere you want. The, the transistor radio had, had morphed in, into, you know, boom boxes and whatever else, media to take wherever you want. It was an astonishing turnaround. I have no doubt that China can do that. But the other thing that struck me when I was there in China is that their domestic market is so bloody vast. Do they even have to be concerned about exporting original things? That's a reasonable question. If you've got 1.4 billion people at home, that'll do, won't it? And not, and not all of them are middle class. I mean, we, we we talk about China, but I mean, yes, there's 350 million people who are middle class in the Western style. That means there's more middle class people in China than in Amer the entire population of America. By the same token, there's another 1.1 billion who aren't yet. Maybe That's less. true. And they may have a harder time getting getting richer because, you know, the, the Chinese economy is slowing now. We're at, we're at 6% if we're lucky, probably a little less. So all that big catch-up, export-oriented kind of uh, drive is, is losing steam. So they have to be smarter, cleaner, greener, all of those things, and export higher technologies. Mm. Well, finally tonight, uh, listeners in Europe who are regular readers of US-based news websites may recently have discovered that they are no longer regular readers of US-based news websites. This is another side effect of the new General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, which is the reason you've spent most of the last two weeks deleting emails from companies asking whether or not it's okay to keep sending you emails. US sites affected include the Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune and Baltimore Sun, among others. Michael, has your reading been significantly disrupted? No, and I'll tell you why. This is an important point to listeners in Europe and anywhere else. The papers you mention are owned by a company called Tronk. Tronk used to, is this creation of, of this vulture hedge fund, which bought up the Chicago Tribune newspapers, Chicago Trib, LA Times, Baltimore Sun, which it had been run into the ground by the previous management as well. They are sim my, my, my assumption is that these papers have just not made the effort to um, send out the emails because they're, t they're, they're literally are being run by morons and asset stripped. <laughs> no, they're being asset stripped at a high rate of speed. Um, the, I mean, and, and that's the reality. When, when this first came up, you're like, oh, my, because I go to the L.A. Times sometimes because you have to. They have important comments. And, you know, California is having its primary this week and it, that's an next week. And that's an important primary for the midterms. And I get this damn thing. You know, I want to read my, you know, I get 10 free articles a month. I want to read the L.A. Times. And then I saw that, yeah, Chicago Tribune, too. It's Tronk. They're just too inept to figure out how to send out an, or, or just put 
click click on the I Like Cookies banner one last time, which is what the news websites are doing. One last time. I love cookies. People don't know what I look like. Believe me. <laughs> I love cookies. I mean, Isabel, do you do you entirely understand what GDPR even is? I, I'm one of those people for whom terms and conditions are not their long suit, to um, be honest. If, if I, I, I would struggle <laughs> to explain. If you're asking me if I've read the 36-page terms and conditions of everyone who's been in touch, I, I, I would, would assume, have to say no. You, you knew we would be talking about this. Yeah. I assumed you would have put in the research. Well, we I, we put in the research because we also keep data and, you know, China Dialogue. We had to comply with GDPR. It wasn't too painful. Most of the people who hear from us have subscribed and that's okay. So it um, can be done, is your point? It absolutely can be done. And I think this is, I mean, I think Michael's right that anyone who wants to do business as opposed to asset strip would have addressed this. They've had two years to think about it. And they would be anxious to keep European custom if they were, if they were keen on business. Um, but, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post, which I visit every day, seem absolutely fine. So does foreign policy. Yeah, you know, it, it can be done. They just, they, they, they're not even thinking about about, and and the thing is that it would take you know five interns about two minutes to come up with a convincing thing and and you know write the code so that it appears you know for 48 hours before you know the deadline and so on but if you want to read the la times um, i would recommend you download a free virtual private network and then you tell it that you're in chicago and you'll be fine Oh, VPNs. I always think of that as visible panty nines. <laughs> yeah, then that's because you spent your youth reading Playboy. <laughs> you, could, you, you, could, you could make that suggestion, Isabel, in a letter to perhaps one of the affected newspapers. Of course, nobody would be able to read it. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Isabel Hilton and Michael Goldfarb, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Mariana Lagrasta and Helena Jarit. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next. At 1900, it's The Urbanist. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'll be your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.